Hi everybody, welcome to Outspoken, episode 71. I am your host, Justin White, and I apologize for running a bit late this week. Um, I've had a pretty crazy time of it lately. Um, My car, well, let's say my friend, a friend that I know very well, uh, his car failed uh, the smog test four times. And uh, after getting some very bizarre and specific instructions on how to drive it such that the computer will reset itself, um, he, this friend, allegedly, um, passed smog on the fifth attempt after driving around for months without, with, with expired tags. And he told me it was very uh, anxiety-producing. So um, anyway, I've also been a little bit more sociable this week than I am ordinarily, which is something I'm trying to do. Uh, I went and saw the band Wand, who are awesome. I highly recommend them, especially live, if you can do it. And I went last night to see Crispin Glover present uh, some of his books that he sort of compiles and makes out of other books and also present a very intense and bizarre film, um, which if you're going to go see it, it's called What Is It? It's very hard to watch, or it was for me, but definitely stick around for the question and answer session afterward because that's how you, it sort of makes the message clear. Otherwise, the movie will just make you feel bad, I think. Um, So that's why it's been... I've been a little slow on the edit, and here it is. I did it. Uh, This week I talked to my friend Maccabee, who I haven't seen in a very long time. Uh, We had a very brief encounter in New York at a gallery for like a matter of minutes in a crowded space. But before that, it was probably over 20 years since we've seen or talked to one another. So um, let's listen to these uh, natural and unnatural birds for a minute, and then we'll talk to Maccabee. I picked it up, but I I won't do that anymore. Okay, <laughs> don't touch it. Um, <laughs> you might also get sirens and other sort of you know ancillary okay. New York noises. I'm okay with that. I like this sort of ambient noise. It lets yeah. people know that we're in real life. Yeah, we um, also um, you know today it's cold again, but um, you I forget if you've lived in New York, but it might be similar in San Francisco in these big apartment buildings where you know, the, the building super and, and management, they control the, uh, heat. And so there'll be days when it's brutally cold outside and it's so hot in our apartment, we have to open the window. And right now oh. I've got the window open. Um, and so, yeah, there, you might get more New York noise coming in. I like it. Do you, you don't have one of those, um, the radiators that sounds like somebody's banging a hammer on a metal sheet next to your ear. Does it? <laughs> the, the, the Tom Waits model radiator. Exactly. Um, yeah. My brother lived in a place like that in Brooklyn. That was just ridiculous. It was like 
I thought it was a joke at first because he, he was like, yeah, the radio is kind of loud. And then I went and slept in that room. It, it sounds it sounds like somebody is two inches from your head with all kinds of like found metal and they're just slamming it together. Isn't it? And it went all night, it went all through the night. Like it never. Yeah. I, I thought the idea was like when the water is first coming in and it's cold, it sort of bangs the pipes a bit. But it, it went like for the full eight hour cycle. Yeah, um, that seems like that seems like an extreme case. We've had, we have old radiators, and um, definitely there there'll be some banging and clanging. Some I think someone told me once that is a signal that it needs to be cleaned. That would make sense. Yeah, but who's but which what New York super is going to do that? Um, <laughs> none that I've met. I've never met. I've. I've I remember hearing about when my brother moved to New York, I remember hearing about the whole, um, what are they called? The people who find the apartment for you and then charge you an outrageous fee. The broker. The broker, right. Yeah. And, and it's, you have to use one, right? It's not even legal. Yeah, to- yeah. You still pretty much do. It's not unlike the publishing industry where you pretty much have to have an agent to get anywhere. So the, nobody will let you in the door if you don't have an agent. Uh, I mean, it's tough. It's really tough. Um, but just, uh, on the, on the first apartment, I've, I always, I think often about our first apartment in Brooklyn and I feel like most people who've ever tried to live in New York have a similarly just hilarious account of like what that's like. So, um, when we first, Catherine and I first moved here in May of 2000 and we didn't have jobs or our own apartment so we stayed with one of her old friends on state street in brooklyn and mm-hmm. um so like we couldn't actually i guess we like like we couldn't even really work with a broker because we didn't have like real um, great employment history yet or like any money so we just had to find a place that was sort of necessarily a little shady and we ended up getting a, a decent apartment and it you know it was fine at the time um but the the like yeah the guy who rented it to us there was definitely like some slight shadiness to the point of like <laughs> we paid our our rent not only in cash but like in a literal brown paper bag um <laughs> holy shit but it was like did you have to like hand it under the table at some like diner in the middle of the night <laughs> I think it was like just short of that, Justin. It was like, I can't even, I'd love to be able to like conjure exactly the setting of how we handed it over. But I think it was at least like in, in broad daylight, but otherwise it it was just felt, you know, like we were breaking the law by paying rent basically. (laughs) That's amazing. And did you feel like at any moment you might come home and like the doors would be locked and somebody else would be living there? (laughs) Um, I mean, Probably, but you know, let's see, we were back then, I guess we were like late twenties, early thirties and, um, you know, still feeling like somewhat invincible. So like now that would certainly be, that would like drive me into a panic, but like, you know what I mean? Like back then you're just kind of like, well, if that happens, I hope we're like at least wearing outfits we like, and then we can just like go figure the rest out. Right. That's all. As long as you have good walking shoes that day, 
Right. It's going right. to be okay. I just hope when I get locked out of my apartment, I'm not wearing something embarrassing. Totally. Do you think about that when you get dressed in the morning? Like, this, <laughs> this, this might be the day that I don't come home. I got to just not wear my plaid <laughs> golf pants. Uh, the clothes- or maybe do wear your plaid golf pants, depending right. on the... I've been in a... I've been back in a big like replacements listening phase, so plaid golf pants seems about right. But um, I don't think that exactly. But I have been thinking. I just noticed recently a shift in my um, approach to underwear, which is this: oh. <laughs> is um, I used to um, like let's say in a week I knew I had like we were going to dinner at the end of the week or like meeting with someone great. I might, when I was younger, or even a few years ago, just save like my best underwear for those times. And right. now, I found myself just like you might as well wear the good inner good underwear today because you never know. That's a really interesting uh, update to the policy. That's <laughs> I, I. It's so funny. I wonder how many people think about that. I mean, there. I guess there's a joke about. You know, you don't want to get caught with your dirty underwear. Yeah, if um, something happened. But, right, but it's why? A kind of variation, it's a kind of variation on that. But like, I don't even know. Do most people think in terms of like their good underwear and their bad underwear? I'm not sure. I was about to ask. Like, how? I wonder how many people consider that. And and also, why do we have bad underwear? Why do we keep our like? You know, I mean, I, I absolutely do. I have in my drawer, I even have it sort of sorted. Like the ones at, at the back are the ones right. with holes and, yeah. you know, yeah, they're kind of shredded at the, yeah. the waistband. And, um, totally. but I guess those are the just in case ones, but yes. when, if you don't do laundry often enough, you're going to need to wear those ones. So you're, you're wondering why don't we just improve the just in case ones also? I think so. I mean, that's kind of what I, I have maybe a three stage underwear uh, operation going where there's like the, the, the brand new ones. Yeah. And uh, which hilariously, I'm sort of reluctant to wear too much, you know, like you they're exactly like you said, like save those for the special occasions mm-hmm. as if anybody's going to see them or are think you know, like if you're going to a job interview, <laughs> underwear shouldn't be much of a consideration or to like a, nice dinner or whatever unless you know unless there's a chance you're gonna be with somebody that night um which i think maybe that's the only time you should really have to consider it i think Uh, maybe and if you are with someone then i guess the interview has gone well that's right (laughs) totally really well yeah um but also i have the i have a i go back and forth with this kind of stuff because i'm really not very image conscious conscious mm-hmm. but um i mean I, I must be on some level because i'm human and i have an ego and but I, but i don't i often leave the house looking pretty disheveled and not always totally clean and uh i if it were if i were to meet someone that i was interested in and they were interested in me mm-hmm. if it ever got to that point where they're going to see my underwear mm-hmm. i would not want like holes in my underwear to be the the thing the make or break right issue you know and if it was i think i would have to reconsider that person as a as a mate you know because i don't right 
I don't want to be, I'm not hung up on that kind of stuff. And I don't think I want to be with someone who is because it feels weird. I don't want to be judged for things like that. Yeah. You know? Yeah, I do. I know. Um, but also you should probably wear clean and decent looking underwear just in general, if you can. I, I feel like you, you should, although I've been thinking more and more about like disposable fashion and, um, I, I guess part of my dilemma, you know, not to take it from a superficial place to somewhere else, but like, yeah, it's just that is like, um, I guess until until recently, I probably bought most of my underwear at places that you know make more or less disposable clothes, and um, trying to not buy from those kinds of places anymore. Um, so, like, like what what would be an example of a of disposable, um, uh, like a, a brand that. I guess you mean like, just stuff that wears out quickly and you and you get rid of it or yeah i mean like you, um places like h&m or or even like you know um uniqlo like um that yeah just like make cheap stuff that go uh, like goes from your drawer to like a landfill really quickly um yeah so so are you seeking out like better better fabrics or better brands or what, how do you do it? I mean, I'm just early stages, but I think like my hope is maybe it could be a combo of, um, only like mostly buying stuff from thrift stores, although probably not the underwear. And then occasionally, <laughs> occasionally just buying like splurging on like, a nicer, longer lasting something, whether it's a shirt or underwear, but like, you know, for the most part, the truth is I don't actually like need clothes much of the time. I, I like clothes. And so like, I, you know, I, I'm like weak and sometimes we'll go and like want something new, but I, yeah, I'm just, you know, trying to kind of amend that somewhat and like not, feel like I need to get it and I'll like only only get stuff when you kind of like need it and not when you want it you know yeah <clears throat> that's generally my policy I like used I like getting used clothes and yeah. um that's kind of all that I buy except for the the once in a while right I don't know if it's even weak to do that I think it's I don't know I I think it is I don't think we should be following trends just to stay up with it you know and always replacing our entire wardrobe um, but I also know that some people really identify with what they're wearing and they really want to be presenting something and it's important to them. So I try not to judge it for others, but I'd be pretty happy with what, I mean, I am pretty satisfied with my, I guess I get bored of it. I have the same shirts that I've been wearing for years and years and, uh, I do wear them until they're threadbare. Is, it, is there still like good um, thrifting to be found in San Francisco? I feel like when we were youthful people, like it was much more possible, you know, whether in San Francisco, New York, or where I grew up in Baltimore, like just, yeah, it was like less picked over, you know, it was like easier to find yeah. cool stuff for cheap. 
That's definitely true. It's much harder to find good stuff that anything that has like any sort of retro value is now yeah. considered vintage and it costs 10 times more than what it should. Yeah. Um, and vintage, so, vintage is yeah. the thing that's ruined it for all of us. Totally. And all you have to do really is put that name on it because right. it could be something that's not, has no actual inherent superior value. It's just yeah. older. We went right when we crossed over from thrift to vintage, maybe is when things. That's when it went downhill big time. Yeah. Or it's when it went from like a $2 shirt to a $20 shirt. Totally. Yeah. T-shirt. You know? Yeah. I, I mean, on principle, I won't, I won't buy things like that. I just can't support the, the gouging industry. Uh. Yeah. I'll just decide not to have it. I don't need that thing anymore. Whatever yeah. it is. Yeah. Um, um, well, I'm glad to hear like your, um, like we were saying before we, we started recording, like we haven't seen each other in a while, but I'm, I'm, I like to hear that. It sounds like your personal style and approach hasn't really changed, you know, in, in many years, like you, yeah. Thanks. I think that's a good thing. I, yeah, I don't, I do. I do. I feel like, you know, I mean, it's just, everything's like so much shinier and glossier and it's where to the point where like, it's hard to distinguish thing. Everything's kind of flattened into the same level of niceness, whether it's, you know, right. or style or design. Like I, I look at cars a lot and I'm just like, they all look the same. <laughs> like there's no, yeah. there's no real push to like design something in a new way. But, um, so yeah, I mean, I feel like I salute your, um, unglossiness. Thank you, man. I appreciate it. I, uh, yeah, I, I rebel against glossiness. <laughs> it just seems, uh, well, I don't want to do anything that feels false you know like if it's just not who i am uh, then why am i pretending that it is who i am um, well that's interesting because i think both my one of my many ongoing struggles is like is kind of knowing exactly who i am like i feel like i don't know if it's a function of just sort of like having interest in so many different things you know um or mm -hmm. or what or just some deeper psychological problem but like i feel like yeah it's just hard for me to kind of know like know exactly in that true sense of like oh when i wear this i feel i don't i mean i kind of know what you mean in terms of yeah you'll put something on and be like it's not me but i think in like a great a deeper sense sometimes I am not sure. And so like there's parts of me that think it sounds great to like, you know, have a fat job and make a ton of dough and like be able to go to the best restaurants and all that, that life brings. And then there's part of me that uh, like finds that kind of disgusting. Totally. Um, I have that. I have the same struggle. I don't, I don't want to make it sound like I have it all figured out and I know, exactly what my true identity is because that would be 
a, a lie. I mean, I, it's something I've struggled with for a really long time mm-hmm. and still do. Uh, just like, I, I don't actually know. I don't, you know, I know what I like and what I don't like. And I know when things resonate and when they don't. But I don't, since society sort of dictates what the identifiers are for us, uh, you kind of like, I, I don't, I've always sort of disliked the, the idea that you have to choose from this certain set of things. And then once you've made that choice, that's, that is an identifier. That's part of who you are. Mm-hmm. I've, I like, I've always tried to sort of mess with that and pick from lots of different categories because yeah. I'm interested in lots of things, like he said, but also because I, it's a, it's a bit of rebellion. It's just like, Nope, you're not going to be able to put me in a box because I'm wearing right. this item and that thing. And I have this interest that doesn't fit with who you think I am. And yeah. Um, but isn't that interesting that we still, you know, in, in middle age, we're still sort of questioning who we are. Yeah. And, and yeah, that ever stop. I don't know. I mean, I wonder if it's like, we're about the same age, I think. And like, I, if I remember right, like, so we coming of age, like, you know, we're into punk rock and, um, I don't know. I feel like maybe that's just kind of baked into not just that generation's DNA, but like, you know, the segment of that generation who was going to like shows and thinking about, yeah, capitalism and Reagan at like a young age. And like, um, (laughs) I don't know, maybe that is just a sort of inherent quality to that sliver of, of our generation that kind of cut there goes the dog that came of age you know in the late 70s and through the 80s um yeah i'm not sure if like a lot of people i went to high school with have like the same struggle necessarily i would imagine so i mean i sort of think everybody does at least in this society where it's things are pretty confused and confusing you know where there's not really a I think there's a, there's sort of insecurity is sort of built into the model that we have where, you know, you're never really quite good enough and you're always expected to be living up to some impossible standard. That's true. Um, yeah. I don't know. I mean, that's kind of my feelings that I, I mean, I personally never felt like I fit in anywhere and I, I didn't, um, I didn't really want to fit in. I just wanted to be left alone by people who otherwise might single me out, you know, because I didn't fit in. Right. Right. I didn't feel a need to be like everybody else, but I didn't want to be called out as being different. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And I didn't have the, I wasn't, I didn't get into punk rock until that wasn't really the, where I was, but I liked hip hop a lot and it probably has a similar Mm. aesthetic, at least like politically. Yeah. You know, the stuff that I would like public enemy and the stuff I was listening to was yeah. pretty much going against the grain. Totally. I mean, the kids I like looked up to most in high school. Um, yeah, they were, you know, as equally into minor threat as public enemy for sure. Uh huh. Yeah. I think they're, they're akin to one another in some regard. Yeah. They're both, saying, you know, fuck the man.
I'm curious about the, the identity stuff. It's always been, I, I really do think it's something that most everyone struggles with. And the people who struggle less maybe are people who find an acceptable thing that they're doing that they can be identified with and they're satisfied with that. So they, they don't have to seek as much, you know? Like if you get a job that people are like, oh, cool, you, you do that, that's cool. And then you could just be that. Right. You don't have to. But I wonder if that's better or worse. Like if you stop reflecting on your true identity when you land in something that other people can use as your identity, you know? I do know. It's interesting you put in those terms. Like I've thought about this, how, you know, for the last two decades or so, I've made a living as an editor and writer and still like, if it ever comes up in a conversation somewhere where someone's like, Oh, you're a writer. I'll like, I won't just go. Yeah. I'll like kind of fumble a bit and be like, I mean, you know, I've written some books and I wrote this and I wrote that, but I don't know. Like it's so it's like in terms of identity, I don't know. It's just a, I have for some reason, like a reluctance to sort of, yeah, just like name, use like one name or one word in terms of and do you think do you think that's because you just don't you don't want to be identified in the in a narrow channel like that i'm not sure honestly like i um maybe that's part of it i i'm not sure i mean you like we were working kind of like different creative artistic ways but like I, I think also for me, part of it is just honestly feeling like a fraud. Like, um, I know I've done these things and produced these things that have come out into the world, but I don't know. It's like that, but also kind of the doubt, like inevitable doubt for me where I'm like, well, I did that in the past, but will I also be able to do it in the future? And if the answer is no, then it's kind of not true to say I am this thing, you know, it's almost like I was that thing. And so like, I, it's like, it's like, yeah, it's sometimes I feel like next time I go to try to write something, what if it like doesn't work? And what if (laughs) it's like the magic is disappears and it's just um, a thing that happened in the past. It's hard to articulate, but it's like, it's just such a huge relief to then like when you do like it happened recently where I hadn't kind of written a thing like pitched an idea and then written the story, you know, like that I was really, really into. I hadn't done that in a while and I did it recently and it was just such a huge relief to realize that I could still do it. And I thought the thing that came out was still pretty good, but I feel like next time, it'll be happen again where it's like, you know, when you sit down, you're like still uncertainty about like what'll actually come out, if anything. So you still, you feel like you have that doubt each time you approach a creative project or a little bit. Like, Do you ever have that with like producing art? Um, I, I do. Let me think. I mean, I definitely with, um, well, I guess it's, it differs for me because I have a lot of different 
pursuits. When I when I'm making music, it's almost always for myself. Like I'm the music. Yeah. Only needs to satisfy my desire to create the music in that in that moment. That's not for an audience. But in the past, the things that I have produced with the intention of putting out, like as an album, I definitely have some reservations about how it's going to be received and am I true to my like am I truly expressing what I feel mm-hmm. as opposed to what I think I want others to hear um so there yeah but I, but the music but at well it took me a long time to even identify as a musician because I I had so many friends who were established musicians and who were really good and I admired their stuff and I thought well I'd, I'm not doing that I don't have I'm not in a band and I'm not playing shows or recordings so yeah I must just be a hobbyist or whatever and then finally I sort of allowed myself to to say yeah I'm a musician um and similarly with art because my brother you know literally when I was born my brother was already an artist and uh and it was a huge part of his identity and mine by association I was sort of the brother of the artist you know for most of my childhood I didn't realize you guys were um that many years apart well he was a prodigy so we're, we're four years apart so by age four he was he was drawing things that really? were getting people's attention and uh wow. and and by the time i was starting to draw he was off and running and you know and and never stopped like he he knew he knew at that age that he wanted to be a painter wow i um, never knew that that's incredible yeah it really is and he he just went straight for it he knew he wanted to go to art school and learn, you know, and he just did it. And yeah. um, so, and I think that growing up, I thought that that, you know, it's either that or you can't call yourself an artist, you know? Mm-hmm. So I never, I didn't feel allowed to identify in that way mm-hmm. until much later when I started making art and people were, you know, interested in it yeah. uh, separate from my brother, you know, and I, I chose a medium that was, totally different so that there was no comparison or competition or anything. Um, and, but yeah, I think, I mean, I, I have the fraud question just sort of in general, like, am I representing myself truly just when I'm, when I'm living my life? Yeah. And, uh, and I don't have a good answer. I mean, I think I try to, I know that I try to, but I also have thoughts that, seem to come from somewhere else. And I'm like, I don't want to be that. I don't think I'm that person. I don't, you know? Yeah. Uh, so, but yeah, creatively, I think lately I'm much more into just saying I'm doing it. This is what I'm doing. Take it or leave it. Right. Um, right. But it took decades to get to that. Yeah. But I, you know, I would, I'm curious about your, because you are a writer. I mean, you, you write, <laughs> right pretty much since I've known you, I think you've been writing one thing or another and yeah. whether, and you, and you have had a lot of work, you know, see the light uh, and have an audience. And so it's interesting to me that you still have that. Um, I mean, it's more than just like the fear that it won't come again. Right. Or, or is it just that? Uh, it's partly that, I mean, I guess, Maybe what I was also getting at is that in the last few years, you know, so there was like 
a solid 15 or 18 years where I was, you know, making a living and mostly writing like journalism or nonfiction stories. Um, and then, so I felt, yeah, pretty, pretty good. And, and about that work, much of that work and like confident that I could do it. I think maybe what I was also alluding to was then in the last few years, having been drawn more towards like back to what I thought I'd do when I was growing up, which I'd gotten away from was just like writing more kind of fiction and inventing stories, whether it's, you know, scripts um, for movie scripts or, or web series or TV scripts. And then um, like most recently um, an idea for like a novel. So it's, that's maybe what I was getting at too, is just this sort of transition. It's been going on a few years. Um, so I feel more confident now than when I kind of started it, but it's, I still feel a bit in the middle of it where I'm kind of figuring out, you know, new forms and a new voice in a way. And, um, I think some, some of it's good, but like, you know, you talked about like stuff that's seen the light of day and, um, definitely now that I'm thinking about it, you know, there's, several scripts I've written in the last several years that it's quite possible they'll never see the light of day. And that, that was a very rare, that would be a rare phenomenon in my years of writing nonfiction, you know, like almost always with that kind of writing, it was either something that an editor had assigned. And so as long as I didn't screw it up too badly, it would get edited and then, published somewhere um okay or like you know a book project where again as long as i like did a decent job it was going to it was had been assigned like these other things are more just stuff i've wanted to pursue on my own and stories and scripts i've worked on on my own or with co-writers and so it's and then it's like you take the finished product or something you're at a point that you like and you know try to get it into the world then and um yeah it's just i've struggled like often struggled just to like get stuff produced basically which i know is a very common uh thing in in those worlds but it's just takes getting used to i guess to like work on something a lot and really love it a lot and and then know that you might not get, really get to share it, which is definitely played a huge part in, you know, a few years ago, working with my friend Nicole to make this web series. We, we had both written a, a lot that, you know, hadn't gotten produced. And when we met and came together, she, I, we met initially because I asked her to look at a script um, my friend Jeremy and I had written. And mm -hmm. she, a friend in the neighborhood introduced us. And then like when we finally met up to talk about the script, like her, Nicole's notes on it were just unbelievably so much better than anything I'd ever gotten from anybody else, which makes sense. Cause she, her background was like in developing 
theater, like productions. So okay. she was just a, a ex expert um, note giver and, and like shaper of narrative. And so at the end of that first meeting, she asked, you know, what else I was working on. And I told her I had a like unformed idea for a web series. And, and she was at a point too, where we both just wanted to like work on something that had a much better chance of getting into the world. And so we thought, you know, if we made this thing on a somewhat small scale for like no money and just made it ourselves, then like we could write together and know that we were writing towards something that would eventually be out in the world. Um, and it, it, that's how it happened. And so, so Ocean Parkway was born. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, at the end of that first meeting with Nicole, I told her this idea had, um, was for like, I had this like weird ambition to like do it as a musical. And she quickly like talked me out of that, thankfully. And then okay. we just sort of honed the idea together and, um, yeah, Ocean Park, right? It ended up, once we had the idea, we like, you never know when you collaborate with someone, but we just ended up like writing a few, a handful of short scripts, like incredibly quickly. Yeah. And is that, am I, and you don't have to get into this, but is it, I vaguely remember reading that, um, was it Nicole who passed away? Is that, is that what happened or someone... It is what happened, yeah, yeah, um, and that's is that why? It, I mean, you would have kept continued going if that were um, if you were able to. We definitely would have continued in some way. Um, so the, I mean, there's so much I could say about this, but the um, the somewhat short version is that, yeah, when. Um, so in like August of 2016, we had the episodes done in the way that you've seen them. And we were working with a TV producer to um, to figure out how to, to try to make it as a TV series. And that producer had a first look um, deal with HBO. And so the idea was to you know, we wrote up TV pilot and a bunch of other material <clears throat> to pitch it as a TV series. Um, and around the same time, that same month, in fact, a New York Times wrote a nice piece about the series. Um, and so, you know, Nicole and I would like meet up and just be like, holy shit, like this might actually happen. Um, right. It was just, for both of us like unbelievable and like i said like we just come together trying to like make a little thing and get it in the world and then i don't know it's just pretty quickly started to seem like it might become something that could actually become our like jobs and lives um and that's and then um yeah like a month like then in september a month later her cancer returned and and then roughly a month after that she died and um like right after she died 
pretty soon after, once I was sort of not as shocked, um, I just had, I had it in mind that like, like, it's just heartbreaking. I've got texts from her, like, you know, talking like from the hospital, just talking about like how good the show's going to be. And so I just felt like the thing to do was to like, will it along and just, I felt more determined than I've ever felt about anything to like make the show go on and that I had to do it for Nicole. And so I spent almost probably almost two years like writing a feature script version of it and writing another pilot and just, you know, shamelessly contacting anyone I thought could help. Like I didn't have shame about it because I felt like it was like bigger than me and I just had no choice. And, right. And then I, at a certain point, just realized that a couple things. One, I, no matter how much I wanted to do this and I just wasn't going to be able to like will it to happen. Um, I guess, I mean, I probably, I maybe could have like done more short episodes of it, but because Nicole and I, when she died, were like trying to turn it into this bigger production. I more had my mindset to like do that, like continue the work. Um, and so, yeah, just eventually had to accept that I couldn't, force it to happen and so um yeah at that point I does it feel sorry good oh i was just gonna say i think at that point i like went and like started something else and i i was definitely at the end of that couple of years of of pushing felt really like pretty bad not only still like reeling from her her death, but just also that I felt like I'd kind of let us both down when I was unable to, you know, move it along. And, and um, so I, actually by the, then I just, when I finally put it aside, I it, it, it felt like I just kind of had to do that, you know, just to like yeah. move on. Well, I hope yours not still blaming yourself for it. I mean, it's, it's certainly tragic that, that it happened at all and that it happened with the timing that it did because it did seem like it was there and ready to, you know, ready to go. You made this great thing and it should, it should be out there. Right. Um, so I hope you don't feel, I mean, there's nothing there. Is, you did what you could do. You did all the work that you could do to, to move it forward. And maybe that was also necessary for your own grieving, you know, just to get, yeah. I mean, you did it in her honor and for your own, uh, your own sake. And I think that's noble and doesn't, you know, it doesn't need to add up to this like finished product. I don't know. I think that what you made is, is great. And that I certainly would want there to be more and would, would watch it uh if there were but maybe that's what your net this next project that you're talking about 
it will it will live on in, in that form. Yes, I I agree with you. I mean, I, the other thing I was going to say is that um, I think eventually I also kind of accepted more that it would be okay if Ocean Parkway was what we created together. Um, that maybe, in fact, it was better that way, and and. Yeah, just that, that like, like it's enough. It's a, what you did is already enough. Exactly. It doesn't have like, to be more. Yeah, it's a very strange thing because, right, like we had, you know, the total running time of the episodes is probably around 20 minutes. Um, and we mapped out, you know, a, a couple seasons of a, of a TV series version of it. So, yeah, it's just a strange thing to reconcile to be like we had created this whole other big version of the world but at the right. same time yeah, like maybe what we did together and what we created together is just what what it needs to be and that's okay. It stands alone. Yeah. Yeah, well it sounds like it was such an amazing experience for everybody involved as it was happening so maybe holding on to that is is the right thing to do just recognizing the beauty of that you know process and having that be complete you know yeah yeah but i agree i mean it's hard it's hard to it's hard like you said it's hard to reconcile our brains want to just fantasize on and on into the future like what else what else might have happened and right you know, right. but we beat ourselves up with that sort of ruminating, I think, I know I do. Like, if I had done this, then then this might have happened, but it didn't. Like, that isn't what happened. So um, I think we just sort of create suffering for ourselves when we try to, you know, throw this future idea out into the, on the timeline. Yeah, absolutely. That doesn't actually exist. Absolutely. And I feel like, I try to keep like the Nicole lessons in mind and um, it actually, like, I feel like maybe I lost sight of some of the lessons when I was just single-mindedly determined to push it along. And then at the end of that, like, you know, I was well, in talking to friends right after she died. We, it was like, this expression that we felt like, so I, I met her, you know, between the time when she first had breast cancer and had beaten it and then when it returned. And so in the two or so years I knew her, um, she really just embodied this idea that uh, some friends and I termed hurry up and live. Like she, uh -huh. an example of that is just like, when we were working together, you know, we'd be like, we should contact so-and-so for, to try this. And I'd be like, okay, well, I'll write that person an email tomorrow. And she'd be like, or we could just call them right now. And like, she'd be dialing the phone, you know, and just, it's just that. Awesome. It's like, why? Like, just do it. Yeah. Do it right now. Why? Don't be put around. Just like, there's no time. You don't know how much time you've got. You better just do it.
How much do you believe in, in people living on past the past their physical body? Do you believe in any? Do you believe the consciousness persists and that there's there's access to it in some way? <laughs> um, this is a extremely complicated question for me. Um, so, I mean, so growing up, both my parents were um, I, when I was young anyway it changed when i got older but they growing up they were both into sufism and other like mysticisms okay and and while that's not exactly i mean it's connected to what you're talking about but in any case i mention it because i've had like a kind of fraught relationship with spirituality and uh anything sort of attendant that you know is related and so I, yeah, I mean, for years, I was just kind of like resistant to any of that. They, like my mom, at least definitely like believed in reincarnation. And I thought that was absurd, like just, you know, partly as an act of rebellion, but also just, I just felt like a kind of more in some ways, just pragmatic, I guess, or realistic. I don't know exactly kind of person, but, um, but uh, rational. Yeah, I guess so. Like just um, my, it's weird. Cause my um, grandparents, my mom's parents were like hyper rational and hyper pragmatic. And I, I, I just think I identified with them more um, for different reasons that my therapist can tell you about, but, um, uh, so, but then so you thought your parents are like kooks. <laughs> They're just kind of out there and weirdos. Uh, I mean, they are, they were, uh, yeah, they're definitely kooks and weirdos. And I think they're like phenomenal and fascinating people. Um, and I don't know, I guess like the older I get, the, I'm still not like about to like attend Sufi meetings, but I definitely, um, am more open to, different ideas about consciousness and it's interesting because that same grandmother very late in her life became interested in buddhism and even like took classes at like the local community college when she was like 85 i think uh, that's cool and so i mean maybe that i'm just that's part of my dna is like this arc that sorts of goes in that direction but in in terms of like Nicole and my brother who died young and um, some other people I was really close with who've died young. I, I definitely feel, I don't know. It's hard to articulate, but I feel like I don't want to make it go into like a Yoda like realm, but I feel like they're and I feel their influence and I don't know if it's in a spiritual sense per se, or it's more just the kind of pragmatism of hurry up and live. But I definitely feel them sort of like guiding my life to some extent or informing it. Um, Uh And it might just be as simple as like, these were people I loved and admired and want to sort of emulate in some way. Um, So I don't know, you know, I, I don't, in terms of like, does consciousness live on? I just feel 
completely unqualified to be able to answer that. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I wasn't really looking for a definitive answer. Cause, <laughs> uh, I just think I, I'm just interested in everyone's yeah. beliefs on that subject. I, I personally believe that it does. And I've had personal experience with, uh, you know, not, not so much visitations, but, but an absolute presence of, of a person who is no longer physically with us. Yeah. Um, and I've also had some, some sort of, uh, you know, I've had interactions with, or sessions, I guess you'd say with psychics or people, you know, channels and people who are tapped into the sort of other worlds and, um, and had actually actual direct messages from people, um, who have died in my life. And, you but and then also just the sort of, I have, yeah, yeah, I've, uh, I, I, I mean, I actually went to this woman who is incredible and just, she did sort of some past life readings and, um, and also just kind of summoned these, well, she asked me, is there anyone, you know, who has died in your life that you want to sort of check in with? And I did. And I, and she, and I got some direct messages, one from my uncle and one from an old friend. And, um, <clears throat> and actually the one from the old friend was hurry up and live. It was that exact sentiment. It was like, cause he was someone who had always just sort of taken life to, you know, wanted to get every, every bit of fun out of every moment. And, um, hmm. and I, I settled into this sort of curmudgeonly, you know, solemn state where I was just like, Oh, this sucks. Everything, you know, I was like complaining and unhappy with lots of things. Even if my life was ostensibly going well, I would, I just would settle into that rut. Right. And I, it was a very clear message from him. Like you gotta, you gotta stop taking it so seriously and, and have some fun. And how were the messages conveyed? Well, through, through this woman, uh, she first sort of wanted to identify who it might be. And it, you know, to any skeptic, it would sound like bullshit because it was similar to what you see on TV. It was like, uh, uh, does it start with an R? Is it, you know, like just sort of guessing at what the name might be. Right. But, um, but there was something in each case, there was something that clearly she couldn't have known. And it immediately locked in with what I was, you know, who I thought it might be that she was talking about. And it, I wasn't, she wasn't like fishing for hints. It was just like, well, I'm getting the sense that it's this. And I said, yep, I know who you're talking about hmm. without even revealing who I, who it was. And then it came through the message and it was, it was kind of just like a direct, hmm. you know, relay. It was sort of like, here is this person in whatever spirit form or, you know, yeah, uh, still existing as the consciousness that you knew. Um, and in the case of my uncle, it was, you know, I was young when he died and, uh, he, he took his own life. So it was a sort of, um, I was asking questions about him. Like, what is his, how is he, where is he? What's, you know, how does that work when, when someone commits suicide and, uh, yeah. you know, she talked a little bit about, um, I can't even remember what, what, if it was Hinduism or some, there's some sort of in-between state that's like limbo, but it's has a different name. 
Um, and she said, it's kind of like that, but they have a chance to sort of work through the, the troubling aspects of how their life ended. And then they can reach this point of, of peace with it. And, um, so I was asking about him, like, has he, has he done that? And she said, yes. Um, but he's also, he was also a total free spirit and lots of fun and wanted to, he wanted to live, you know? Mm-hmm. And, uh, I mean, for the time that he was alive, he was alive. He was, he was, you know, a vibrant mm-hmm. person. And, um, so both of them were coming through with that sort of clear message to me, like, you got to get off your ass and stop being such a grump and, you know, <laughs> right. just be, just enjoy life, you know? which is still something I struggle with. And I, you know, I think it's biochemical to some extent, but I also, it, it's an attitude thing. I, I'm still working on yeah. adjusting my attitude. Totally. Um, me too, man. Me too. Um, I have to say like, while I am skeptical about a lot of um, stuff, you know, stuff having to do with psychics and so forth, like I actually get like the idea and it, it's comforting in a real way to think that there are like at least some of them are the like really doing what they say they're the real thing and like i you know there's so many like you pass every block in new york right there's like a psychic for like 10 bucks kind of right. neon window um right so palm readers and such exactly and so like it's fine. Like I, I almost in a weird way, like admire their moxie, but like, I like the idea that there's actually a handful or whatever the number is of um, people like the woman you're describing who actually have this gift and are doing that. And I, it makes sense to me that it seems possible that it is like a, you know, a small number of people that have this, strange exceptional gift and not like everyone who claims to do it obviously right well and and i do think though that um i mean a lot the several of the people that i've spoken to who do have this gift or something like it they will claim that all of us have access to that like many of the people are not they don't have any sort of proprietary sense of what of it being theirs they just say we all can do this. We just have to access that aspect of our being that, that goes beyond the sort of, you know, agreed upon senses. Um, Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I believe that I've had, I've had personal experiences of, of weird psychic stuff. And, um, you know, I've had, I've, I've had encounters with ghosts and things that are, you know, things that are unexplainable. Uh, and I love that stuff. And I feel like, I mean, some people might just think, um, anyone who believes in that is, is delusional. And if you, you know, you, you're willing it into being just by thinking that it's so, but once you've had some experience with it and you feel like it's real and you didn't imagine it, I think it does open you up to the, to the fact that it, it could exist and that you're maybe, you know, the more you tap into it the more you can continue to tap into it. Mm-hmm. And, and maybe it's like other skills where you have to develop, uh, uh, you know, some ability mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and then you can 
freely access it, you know, like, like with meditation or whatever, there's a way that you build up to, or yoga or something, you know, you're doing it better if you've been doing it for a long time. Totally. Um, yeah. But belief is, is certainly a key element that you have to, you know, you have to start with at least, I think you can be skeptical and still, you just have to allow for the possibility of it in order to investigate it. Yeah. That makes sense to me. mom is one of those sort of weirdo kook people that I, I I've always loved people like that and um, but she's always been someone who explores that stuff and has exposed my brother and I to it mm-hmm. um, and so that helps to have like a, a head start with the <laughs> at least well also she was a hypnotherapist so she would um, yeah so she you know some people don't even believe in hypnosis they don't believe that it works or that it could be a real thing but growing up with a mother who <laughs> hypnotized people, I I, uh, I believed in it. That's so funny, Justin. I um, was just telling someone else about this, but so my dad was a um, psychiatrist, and he, he when I was he used to tell a story. He loved this story that when I was very young, he came home from work one day, and I like cornered him, and I was like. I know what you do for a living. And he was laughed and he was like, Oh yeah. What, what, what is it? What do I do? And I like put my finger, my hand on my forehead and wagged my finger back and forth in front of my eyes, like to hypnotize. 
at <laughs> my perception of like his job. I don't think he he didn't actually do hypnotherapy, but that was my perception of like what a shrink did as a you know as a kid. Right. That's awesome. <laughs> if you had had a pocket watch, you would have used that. To, yeah. To swing things with. I love a good pocket watch. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> uh, well, that's cool. Do you, I mean, do you feel like you, I always wonder how much of our development is in direct relation to our parents and, you know, de- the decision to either believe what they're telling us or not believe it, you know? Like to, fo- you don't necessarily need to follow in their footsteps, but it seems really common to have the, have either the 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 child be very much like the parent or very much the opposite, right? You know, right, right. Um, yeah, I've thought about this a lot recently. That story I mentioned before that I'd pitched and and written is actually like, um. It's, uh, yeah, in many ways, just about my relationship with my dad and like it, the sort of unifying part of the story is about this really beautiful old tweed overcoat he gave me when he moved from Baltimore, where I grew up and moved to California. And he like gave it to me. And he's like, I won't need this where I'm going, you know. And um, uh-huh. And I think like. I didn't really know what I, the story was going to be until I started writing it. And what came out was that it was kind of about how I sort of resisted being like him and wasn't really into him as a person in his life in many ways. And then the ways in which I have kind of like moved closer in some ways, I think to like a life that is like his in some ways. And like, um, yeah, just the way, how his sort of worldview, if that's not too grand a phrase, but like his way of moving through the world has just sort of infiltrated me and like almost without even realizing it or trying, he just inhabits me in these ways that, I feel powerless, you know, again, and that maybe, maybe it's more that I stopped kind of resisting at a point and open to, and so I, I mean, maybe some of this, I'm just only thinking of as we're talking, but it's possible, like growing up, I almost set myself up in opposition to my parents. And like, if they liked the Beatles, then I did not like the Beatles. Um, Right. And now I'm more open to, like, a, I don't need to be so defiant and contrarian and can be comfortable accepting that, like, that I am connected to them in this deep way. And, and you know, that. Right. And it might also have to, I, I don't want to put this on you, but maybe have something to do with becoming a parent yourself. Yeah, maybe, maybe. I mean, I mean, the, that's complicated because, you know, my parents split when I was 11 and my brother was 14 and then they divorced a couple of years after that. And certainly like 
a thing when Catherine and I were starting a family, a thing I thought about was like, mm, I don't want to, you know, I do not want to replicate that at all. And um, I want, you know, an extension of that is like, for up until I moved out, like at 16 or whatever, um, you know, stopped living with my parents at 16. Like, I, like it was, it was a bit, it was definitely like some wild years. And so in starting the family, I was like, let's not do that. Let's like have it be um, much, much sort of like safer and, and um, warmer and, I mean, not that our house was not warm, but just sort of have more consistency and comfort and security for the kids. And so I think there's a lot of that, but then, but then, yeah, just similarly, inevitably, I feel like I can almost hear my dad, like his thing, the way he like regards the world and like, you know, his politics and all that is like, really close and so i think it does come out in like our parenting where we sort of walk this line between like providing them things i felt like my parents weren't very good at providing but also but there was like ways they saw the world and like taught us to think about the world that i think is really valuable and and smart and like lovely and um you know yeah to like bring some of that into it too so i think it's just sort of yeah well they are work in progress sorry just like a comp combining of all this stuff and you know as with parenting so much of it is just sort of invented on the spot anyway right ain't that the truth <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, for me, I, I don't want to keep you too much longer because I know you have your your girls there. But um, I just on this subject, I'm I'm always conscious of how I felt as a kid in relation to my parents or just adults in general, and how I am now, and how, and I sort I sort of still have that childhood feeling of like, you know you don't know, don't tell me what to do. You know, you don't want to, mm -hmm. you, you don't know what my life's about. And then being a parent, there's a certain amount of sort of instruction that you wind up giving or, you know, you want it to just be sort of guidance, but often it comes through me as like, you need to do this and you got to do this and do this thing. And there's all the stuff that I was totally resistant to, not the specifics, not, not the actual instructions, but just the idea of being instructed. Right. As a kid, I was like, "Leave me alone! I'm gonna, I want to figure it out on my own." And I, and I really felt that, like, I really felt like I could and that I wanted to, and I didn't want other people's opinions about how I should lead my life. But as a parent, it's it is seemingly impossible to not offer that stuff yeah. to your kid. You know? Yeah, yeah. So I'm learning to sort of retroactively give my parents a break <laughs> for for all of that because I know that I was hyper resistant at the time and I and I carried it through well into adulthood where I was like no no you don't you don't get to be the authority right I'm the authority right yeah um, I mean I don't know there's no like master blueprint right you just like 
figure it out. <laughs> Just keep on winging it and hope hope to do the best you can. Do it a little. Well, I think as if, little damage as possible. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's what it is. To me, to me, the master. If there is a master blueprint, it's love. Just give give love. Yeah. Give lots and lots of love and support, and let them know it. And that's the only real framework that's needed. No, well, that's for sure. And you know, just so you know, I like the Beatles now. And um, <laughs> okay, good. Yeah, <laughs> believe in a lot of their messages. <laughs> that's good. That's good. Well, it's it is possible to like the Beatles and still like <laughs> punk rock. And, you know, yeah, it turns public. Out, it turns out, Justin. Um, don't know if you know this. They wrote a few good songs. They did, yeah. They have a couple at least that are uh, worthwhile. Keepers, yeah. Well, it's really great talking to you, man. Uh, you too. I'm glad. Yeah, thanks so much for making the time and being available so quickly. Um, of course. And, thanks. Uh, thanks for inviting me. And I'm not going to hang up right now. I'll let you do your thing, okay? Cool. Yeah, well, just uh, I'm going to click a couple buttons and then if need be, I'll text you back to, to make sure it's all settled. But right now it looks like we, we captured everything. All right. So, cool. um, well, thanks so much, man. Let's, um, I'll, I'll let you know when it's up and let's, let's be in touch, um, off the mic one of these days and, and maybe okay. we can see each other in person for the first time in however long it's been. I would really love it. Truly. It's really nice to be back in touch for sure, ma'am. All right, Mac. Well, thanks so much for talking. It's really great catching Thank up. You. Appreciate it. Talk to you soon, okay? All right, man. Bye. Thanks for listening, everybody. That was my friend, Maccabee Montandon. Um, you know, I don't think I've ever said his name out loud, so I don't know if I'm pronouncing it properly, and I probably should have asked him. But uh, it's spelled M-O-N-T-A-N-D-O-N. So go check out his work. Uh, it's what I've seen of it, which is the web series Ocean Parkway that we talked about a little bit. Um, actually, we talked about it quite a bit more and I decided that rather than hear an explanation of it, you should just go see it. And then um, could come back to a future episode of Outtakes, Outspoken Outtakes, and I'll, I'll put in the part where we talk about the process. And, uh, but just know that his daughters are, both of his daughters are in the show. They are two of the stars. Um, and it's really, really excellent. It's really great to see so check that out it's called ocean parkway and you can watch it on vimeo um you can also find it at the following address www.oceanpkwy.com and it has the whole has all the episodes and about the cast and so forth uh so yeah maccabee wrote that with his friend nicole who we talked about um, he also has a couple future projects coming up, one of which is, I guess, inspired by that, or it's an extension of that. Um, it's called Greenwood, green hyphen wood. Uh, 
And um, there is no place to find that yet, but keep an eye out for him um, in the future for the for that. And then also something called Close to Me, which is a feature script that he co-wrote with another friend. And currently, you can listen to a podcast episode that he co-created and produced for the New Yorker Radio Hour, uh, either by going to wnycstudios.org and looking for it. It's called The Long Distance Con. Or just get the app on your phone and do it that way because that's probably what you're going to do. So the podcast itself is called The New Yorker Radio Hour. And... The episode is called The Long Distance Con. Check it out. And if you want to find uh, Maccabee on Instagram, you may do so by going to the following location. Uh, First, you want to open the app. It's called Instagram. Uh, You may have heard of it. And then uh, his address is, I guess it's an address. His, His moniker is at... Maccabeam, which is Maccabee M. So it's M-A-C-C-A-B-E-E-M. Go check it out. And then you could probably find links to future stuff there when it happens. Uh, You can also find me on that same format, venue, whatever it is, uh, virtual space. And I am at Outspoken underscore podcast. And I would love to hear from you. I think you're all wonderful human beings. Every single last one of you, even the jerks. And, um, you know, keep on working on it. Um, Whatever it is. And I love you and I'll see you next week.